Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading will be 1 Thessalonians 4. We'll read 1 through 8. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. You follow along with... uh Brian, as he reads that, and you think, oh, no, we're going to talk about that. Yes, we are. Let's pray. Our Father, we are very interested in what is written. Not what is written in books, in our libraries in our schools, not what is written in the media, we are interested in what is written in your book, the Holy Scriptures. Father, thank you that you have something to say about everything that's going on in our world. And in our life, we're so grateful. It's so helpful, Lord. I ask that you would speak to our hearts today. Help us to to listen carefully, to see carefully what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles, have them ready. Uh, Perhaps your study sheets also, if you are a person who follows them and, and takes notes. A number of years ago, uh, Janine and I visited someone's home here in Embarrass. None of you. Okay, none of you. We went there to meet them, and uh, we walked into their house, and it was a mess. Obviously, hoarders lived in that home. Because as we came in to the kitchen, there were piles on the floor. As we walked into the living room, there were piles, there were magazines, there were books, there were newspapers and all kinds of other things, cardboard boxes. You can almost visualize it. Just piles everywhere and there were paths between the the piles. And so we took the path into the living room and 
a path led us to a, a couch and a chair, and we sat with the people and visited. But as we were walking into the living room, I happened to notice on top of one of the piles a book. And the title of the book was, get this, Clutter-Free Living. Now, there are only a couple possibilities. It was obvious that these people owned that book. It was in their home, right on top. So one possibility is that they had not read the book yet. They weren't aware of what it, it said. And the proof was right before us. We were walking through it. The second possibility is that they had actually read the book And for some reason, chosen not to follow what was written in it. And isn't that like so many people when it comes to the Word of God, to the Scriptures? I would guess everybody here this morning has at least one copy in your home. Most of you more than one copy. And sometimes you watch people live their life. People who have Scripture in their homes available to them. And there's only two options. One is, although they have Scripture in their home, they haven't read it. Their life proves that. Or they have Scripture in their homes. They have read it. They know what it says. And for some reason, they choose not to follow it. And that happens, friends, in the area of sexuality. And uh, we are in the midst of a, of a series called Male and Female, What is Written? And we're looking at what Scripture says about that subject of sexuality. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to see what God has to say about sexual sin and the Christian. I'm not going to talk about the world. We're not going to talk about people who don't care what the Bible says. We're not going to talk about people who don't care about what God says. We're going to see what Scripture has to say about the subject of sexual sin and the Christian. Okay? Before we look at two Scriptures, I'm just going to take you to two Scriptures that will show us what is written about this. Um, I want to ask you a, a question. Why is sexual sin so prevalent and sexual temptation so strong? Because they are, right? Sexual sin is very prevalent all around us. And <clears throat> sexual temptation is very strong. It really is. 
Now, we could, in another setting, have a really good sit-down conversation about the answers to that question. Let me just give you two. The first one has to do with the very character of sexuality. Just the very character of it is what makes sexual sin so prevalent and the temptation so strong. Sexuality involves emotions, strong emotions. It involves feelings, strong feelings, sometimes to the point of erotic, ecstatic. Sexuality involves our body. It involves desires, strong desires, lusts. Sexuality involves passions. It's a very intimate thing. Sexuality involves romance. It involves, uh, I'll put it this way, a kind of love. Because you get the word love thrown around a lot in conversations about sexuality. So it, it does involve a kind of love, and that's important to us. And, of course, it involves pleasure. Uh, pleasure is really important to we human beings. And so because of the very character of sexuality, um, sexual sin is prevalent and sexual temptation is very strong. Another reason I would suggest for this is the presence of what I call last week the corrupt trio. In Ephesians chapter 2, and you might want to read that sometime, even this afternoon, first part of Ephesians 2, we are told that apart from Christ, those who are not followers of Christ, we are controlled by three things. We are under the control of the world. And when you think of the area of sexuality, the world basically promotes it. When you, when you think of sexual sin, the world promotes it everywhere. Uh, the world glamorizes it. The world normalizes it. The world even puts pressure on us toward sexual sin. Then Paul says in Ephesians 2, when we aren't followers of Christ, the flesh controls us. Our own fleshly desires within us that we're born with. And Paul says, when you aren't a follower of Christ, your flesh and the desires of your flesh control you. And third, he says, not only the world and your flesh control you when you're not following Christ, but the devil, Satan, controls you. And he has learned over millennia that he can be very effective. He's called the tempter, right? He can be very effective in temptations towards sexual sin. He has ruined many lives throughout history. He has done a number on many Christian lives throughout history with his temptations towards sexual sin. So Paul says that before we're followers of Christ, before we come to salvation, 
We are under control of those three corrupt things. The world, the flesh, the devil. But Paul goes on to say that through Jesus Christ, we can be saved. We can be forgiven. We can be freed from the control of those three corrupt things. Which is wonderful. And we even sang about that. It's by the mercy of God and by His grace. And we are saved from the control of this corrupt trio. But the Bible also teaches that those three are still around. They're still around. And even though we as Christians, we who have come to salvation in Christ, are freed from the control of those three, we are still influenced. Those three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil, still are waging war against us. Have you experienced that war? The world, its war on you, your own flesh, desires, their war on you, the devil and his temptations, his war on you. And because of that corrupt trio, I think that makes sexual sin very prevalent. It's a primary way to get at us. It makes sexual temptation very strong. It's interesting that God, as a consistent God, I really believe that. I like consistency. I like the fact that God is consistent. You can count on that. He has given a consistent message throughout the Scripture from start to finish. And here's the message that he has always been consistent with. Be holy because I am holy. It's quite a message, isn't it? And God has given that message to his people throughout Scripture. If you turn with me to the book of Leviticus in the New Test- Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, which is quite early in the Old Testament, chapter 11 Verse 45, God is speaking to his nation, Israel, the nation he called, the nation he built. And he says here in Leviticus 11:45, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. Be holy. What does that mean? It means to be set apart for God. To be pure, set apart from sin, different. And he said to his nation, I want you to be holy because I'm holy. You come to chapter 19 as he continues to set up his nation. And uh, first two verses, Leviticus 19, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. 
Again, he repeats it. Consistent message for his people, the nation of Israel. And then if you go back to chapter 18, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. At the beginning of chapter 18, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. From the beginning, God said to his people, I want you to be different. I want you to be holy because I am. I don't want you to be like the people around you in the world. I don't want you to be like Egypt where you were slaves. I don't want you to be like the people in Canaan where I'm going to bring you who don't know me. I want you to be holy. I want you to be different. I want you to be set apart for me. And if you go into the rest of chapter 18, it's all about sexuality. As he just lists all the different sexual relations that would not fit with holy. That they need to be set apart from. Egypt practiced all those things. The people in Canaan practiced all those things. And God said, I want you to be different. I want you to be different. I want you to be holy, even in the area of sexuality. Now, is that just an Old Testament thing? It's not. God's consistent in his message to his people. Let's go to the New Testament to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, toward the end of the New Testament. Chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. The Apostle Peter says in verse 15, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, and then he quotes from Leviticus, Be holy because I am holy. The message hasn't changed for God's people. The message to his people, the nation of Israel, was be holy because I'm holy. God's message in the New Testament to the followers of Jesus, his people, was be holy for I am holy. And then if you go to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, same message. First verse, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness, growing in holiness out of reverence for God. Before we look at these two main scriptures concerning sexual sin in the Christian, I just want you to keep this in mind. Let this be the overarching truth, the overarching message that God has always been consistent with. His people are to be holy because he is holy. Holy in every part of life. 
including the area of sexuality. That's a part of life. We, we can't separate it from everything else in life. God's consistent message has been that his people be holy. Okay. First Thessalonians. Let's go to the passage that uh, Brian read. We're just going to walk through these two primary scriptures on sexual sin and the Christian. And we're just going to ask one question, and it's the question of this entire series. What is written? What does the Bible say? Isn't that a simple question? What does the Bible say? And if we are followers of Christ, Christians, disciples of Jesus, whatever you want to call it, Shouldn't we be interested in and care about what is written? Because this is God's message to us. So let's, let's see what he says about sexual sin and the Christian. Because uh, the Apostle Paul, both here in 1 Thessalonians and then <clears throat> when we move over to 1 Corinthians, is writing to churches. So he's writing to Christians. These are messages to people who follow Jesus. They are also messages to Christians who are living in sex-crazed societies. You can read about the culture around the Thessalonians. You can read about the culture around the Corinthians. These Christians, just like us, we're living in a sex-crazed society. They needed to hear God's message. So, let's start in verse 3. We're just going to walk through it. He starts, it is God's will. Pretty important, God's will. Important to you? Important to me? It is. What does God want? God's will. So he says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. That word comes from the same Greek word that's translated holy. So holy and sanctified are the same thing. Set apart for God. Set apart from impurity for God. And so basically, this message about holiness is continued here. Paul says, it is God's will that you should be holy. And then he says, specifically, I want to talk about one area. It is God's will that you should be holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality. So he's narrowing it down to one area. It's God's will that you avoid sexual immorality. Stay away from it. Don't be part of it. Avoid it. What's sexual immorality? Greek word is porneia. We get pornography from it. Sexual immorality, as we saw last week, is any sexual relations or lusts or pleasure experienced outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. 
That's sexual immorality. That's how the Bible presents sexual immorality. God created a man and a woman to start with. He chose the gender of each person, man or woman, male or female. God is binary. Scripture says just two. It's how God created us. And he made the choice. And then he created marriage. Genesis chapter 2. Where a man and a woman, a male and a female, would enter this bond. And God gave them a, a special, unique gift within that bond. And it's called the one flesh relationship. The sexual relationship. A special thing from the beginning for a husband and wife. Wonderful gift in that relationship. And from Genesis on, you find that every other sexual relationship is considered immoral, sexual sin. And so, Paul says to the Christians in Thessalonica, it is God's will, like it's always been, that you should be holy, including the area of sexuality, that you should avoid sexual immorality. He goes on. It's God's will that each of you should learn to control your own body. Sexual sin involves our body. And he says it's God's will that you learn how to control your own body in a way that's holy. There it is again. And honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. It's God's will that we not wrong people. That we not take advantage of people. And this is in the area of sexuality in this passage. So it's God's will that we abstain from sexual sin. It's God's will that we learn how to control our bodies in that area. And it's God's will that we don't, through sexual sin, wrong people, which happens often when sexual sin takes place. And it's God's will that we not wrong people, that we not take advantage of people. He goes on to remind us that God takes his will very seriously. Verse 8 says, or verse 6 ends with, The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. He takes it seriously. Verse 7, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. That's pretty logical. God did not call his people to live impure lives. It doesn't make sense, does it? A pure God a holy God, would not call people to himself so that they can live an impure, unholy life. He called us to live a holy life. Therefore, verse 8, anyone who rejects this instruction 
does not reject a human being, but rejects God. Wow. The very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. The very God, Christian brothers and sisters, who by his grace and mercy saved us. The very God who then gave through that salvation his Holy Spirit to live in us. If we reject what he teaches about sexual sin, we're not rejecting some pastor. We are rejecting God himself because it's his word, right? It's his word. It's his message. It's his will. It's his calling. And when we who know that choose to still be involved in sexual sin, we're rejecting his message. We're rejecting him. I mean, that's what's written. That's what it says. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, this one wasn't read for us, so you haven't heard it yet. We'll, we'll try to go through it a little more slowly. But again, this is, this is a message about sexual sin to God's people. Uh, Paul is writing to Christians in the city of Corinth. And uh, in verses 12 to the end of the chapter, if you were to take the time and uh, kind of do some marking, you would find that the word body, just give you a heads up, the word body is repeated at least seven times. So it gives us a clue that body is a main subject of this passage. So let, let's see what God's message is here. First of all, Paul quotes people and then gives a response to them. He says, I have the right, verse 12, to do anything, you say. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. <laughs> you ever heard people say that? I can do whatever I want. I have the right. But I will not be mastered by anything. Verse 13, you say, food for the stomach, stomach for the food. God will destroy them both. Now, I need to give you some background here. During the day of the Apostle Paul, during the early days of Christianity, in the cultures these Christians lived in, there was a teaching that was known by a number of names, but one would be dualism. Dualism said that a human being is made up of two parts, the body and the spirit. They're on the right track there. Two parts, the body and the spirit. But what dualism said is that those two parts don't affect each other. You've got the body, and the body is always evil, they said. The body is evil. And you've got the spirit, and the spirit is always good, they said. And neither of them affect the other. The body and what it does doesn't affect the spirit. The spirit and what it does doesn't affect the body. They're separate. 
so when you have this quote about food and stomach, what it is is the part of this dualism. They're going to be gone someday. Eventually, the body will be gone. It'll come to an end. And if it's evil, just let it do what it's going to do. It's not going to affect you spiritually. Your spirit's good. It's always good. Now, can you see the danger in that thinking? Pretty good justification for any kind of sin the body's involved in, right? Hey, body's evil anyway. It's not going to affect you spiritually. And someday the body will be gone. And it'll be just your spirit, the good spirit. Quite a justification for sexual sin. So they lived in that kind of culture that that was the thinking. And so Paul is kind of bringing up some stuff about that. So he says, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, Paul says, is not meant for sexual immorality. But for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He's beginning here to argue that the body does matter. There is a connection between the body and spiritual things. The body is for the Lord, he says. The Lord for the body, and your body was not made for sexual immorality. He goes on. He says in verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. The body does matter. The body isn't just going to disappear and never exist again. He says, Jesus rose bodily and one day you will rise bodily and receive a new body. The body is important to God. We're going to have a body in eternity. Bodies are important. A body isn't separate from the spirit. What happens with the body affects the spirit, and what happens with the spirit affects the body. You can't separate the two. He goes on. Verse 15, he reminds the Christians, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Your body, if you belong to Jesus, is connected with Jesus. He has all of you, including your body. So, he says, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Do you see what he's saying? The body is important. The body is for the Lord. The Lord is for the body. It's not separate from the spirit. It matters what happens to the body, what you do with your body. It's important. And he says, shall I then take 
the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? That's sexual relations. Outside of marriage, obviously. And he says, never. Do you not know, verse 16, that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, and then he quotes the Old Testament, for it is said, the two will become one flesh. Where is it said that? Genesis 2:24. back to the beginning, God's design that marriage would be a bond between one woman, one man, and that they would have this special gift and unique experience as a husband and wife given to them by God in their marriage called becoming one flesh, the sexual relationship. And Paul says, when you have sexual relations with a prostitute or any other sexual relations outside that relationship, marriage, It's sexual sin. The only one you are to become, according to God's design, one flesh with, is your husband or wife. Then he goes on. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Since the body matters, since... Your body is important to God. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Run, escape, get away. You remember Joseph back in Genesis 39? That's what he did literally, wasn't it? When Potiphar's wife kept seducing him. He said to her, I cannot do this wicked thing and sin against God. Whoa. He knew what it was all about. And he didn't have 1 Thessalonians 4. And he didn't have 1 Corinthians 6. But he knew that if he had relations with somebody else's wife, in this case of Genesis 39, it would be wicked and it would be a sin against God. Joseph knew that. And so Paul says, flee. Stay away from, escape, run from sexual immorality. And here's an interesting statement. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. When you commit sexual sin, you sin against your own body. Do you realize how much money is spent on medications to treat the consequences of sexual sin? Do you realize how many medications were even invented 
because of sexual sin. Is that what Paul means? I don't know. But he says sexual sin is a sin against your own body. And the body matters, according to this passage. Verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies, he's speaking to Christians now, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? He, he just reminds these Christians of that fact, that when you trust Jesus for salvation, you come to him. Receiving him as Lord and Savior, he places his Holy Spirit in you, and your body becomes a temple. We have all kinds of temples sitting around here this morning. I'm a temple. I'm a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And if you are a follower of Christ, you are a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says to these Christians, don't you realize that? Why is that important? That my body is where the Spirit of God lives. Well, here's one reason. Every time that a Christian commits sexual sin, wherever that is happening, the Holy Spirit is right there. Living in the body that is committing sexual sin. Whether it's at home in front of a computer, whether it's out down a road somewhere, whether it's in a bedroom somewhere, it doesn't matter where. If you are a Christian and you choose to commit sexual sin, you are doing it in the very presence of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Now contemplate that for a while. You can't leave him outside the door. You can't leave him at home. He lives in you. And that's what Paul is saying. Don't you realize, Christians, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when you commit sexual sin with your body, he's right there. Boy, if that isn't a deterrent. He goes on to say, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Because the Holy Spirit lives in our bodies, our body is not our own. We gave our lives to Christ, including our body. Not just our spirit, our body. Belongs to Him. We're not our own. <clears throat> I remember back in the 80s. Back in the 80s. I remember on a retreat at Storybook Camp with our youth group. And I can just picture it. We were sitting in a corner of the dining room there. If you've been at Storybook, you can picture this too. We were sitting on the floor in a circle there in the dining room, and we were doing a Bible study from this passage. And when we got to the part where Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. And I emphasize that part, you are not your own, 
You belong to God. Your body belongs to God. I remember one girl sitting in that circle getting really upset. And she spoke up. And she said basically something like this. Nobody owns my body. It's mine. that sound familiar? Nobody owns my body. It's mine. I can do what I want with it. Uh-uh. Not if you're a follower of Christ. What's written? You are not your own. The Spirit of God lives in you. Your body was bought just like your spirit with the blood of Jesus. He owns your body. Therefore, here's how it ends. Honor God with your body. Glorify God with your body. He owns it. Oh, we're done with that. Okay. Um, The title of today's message is Holy Sexuality. And that's really what we've been looking at. From the beginning, God's consistent message to his people, whether it was the people of Israel or it's the followers of Jesus, has been be holy because I am holy. That's the consistent message. And it's to be in every area of life, including sexuality. Holy sexuality is God's message. But I want to end with reminding you of this. Holy sexuality is about God. More than it's about us. Holy sexuality is about God. And I've got it there for you on the, on the sheet, so we don't have to spend a lot of time. Holy sexuality is about God's design. He's the creator. He created human beings, male and female. That's what's written. He created and designed marriage from the beginning to be between a man and a woman. And in that design for marriage, he gave this wonderful, unique gift of becoming one flesh, the sexual relationship, just for a man and a woman in their marriage. That was his design, his creation from the beginning. Holy sexuality is affirming that. Affirming God as the creator. Affirming God as the one who chose our gender. Affirming God and his design of marriage. And affirming God's design that sexual relationships are only within that marriage. It's about God's design. Holy sexuality. Holy sexuality is about God's call. That's what Paul said, right? He's called you. He's called you to be His. And He didn't call you to be impure. He called you to 
to holy living. It's God's call. Friends, Christian friends, that's God's call on our life to be holy, even in the area of sexuality. Holy sexuality is about God's will. Paul said that. It is God's will, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's God's will. Is that important to us? Holy sexuality is about doing God's will. Holy sexuality is about God's temple. 1 Corinthians 6. Understanding that my body as a Christian is indwelt by God's spirit. He lives there. My body is his temple. Sexual sin is about what I choose to do with the temple of God in violation of his will, his call, his design. And holy sexuality is about God's glory. End of the passage in 1 Corinthians 6. Because God owns your body, because the Spirit lives in your body, glorify Him with that body. Honor Him. That's holy sexuality. Basically, I mean... The big idea is that holy sexuality is simply following what is written in God's Word about the subject. That's holy sexuality. Find what is written about God's design, His will, His call, His temple, His glory, and follow it. That's holy sexuality. Some of you probably remember this little chorus that we used to sing in Sunday school way, way, way back when I was a wee little boy. It was called the B-I-B-L-E. Remember it? It took me a couple of years before I found out those letters spelled Bible. I could never figure out what we were singing, B-I-B-L-E, you know. But it spells Bible. You remember how it went? The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. Now get the get the next line. Uh-huh. I you get the next line i stand alone on the word of god now alone there does not mean i'm the only one it means that's the only thing i stand on i stand alone on the word of god the b i b l e do you stand alone when it comes to sexuality, on the Word of God, what is written? Or are you choosing to follow other things that are being written? Other things that are being said? Other things that are being taught? Other things that are being spoken on sexuality? Do you stand alone on what is written? Because if you do, you will practice holy sexuality. Because when you stand on something, if you really stand on something, you will live it. 
James in James 1 said, Be doers of the word and not hearers only. It's not enough to know what it says. It's not enough to claim you stand on it. You must be a doer. That's holy sexuality. And so, I don't know what God has to say to you about this. I don't know what's going on in your life. But I do know that sexual sin is prevalent. I know sexual sin um, carries with it great temptation. The temptation is strong. I know that the corrupt trio is very present today and can influence we Christians, the world, the flesh, the devil. We need to stand on what is written in God's Word because His message has not changed from the beginning. Be holy in all you do because I, your God, am holy. Holy sexuality. If you want an assignment, I encourage you to go to Psalm 139, toward the end of that psalm, King David is, interestingly enough, um, asking God to search him. He says, God, search me. Know my heart. David was acquainted with sexual sin, wasn't he? It was a struggle for him, temptation. But at the end of Psalm 139, he says, God, search my heart and let me know if there is some sinful way in me and lead me toward the everlasting way. Help me. If there's something in my life, and in this case, that violates God's holiness in the area of sexuality. God, show it to me. Forgive me. And help me from this day forward. Move on. Living out your desire for me, which is holy sexuality. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you do address this subject. It's always been something that needs to be addressed by you. Father, I pray that we would take what is written, what we've seen. These aren't difficult passages to understand. It's pretty clear what these two passages say about sexual sin in the Christian. Father, we need to just get serious about your desire for us to be holy, to be different. Because we serve and have as our Father a holy God. Father, speak to each of my brothers and sisters. Speak to me, Lord, as we ask you to search our hearts. And if there's something in this area that we need to address, O oh God, by the power of your Spirit living in us, Lead us to repentance. Thank you for your forgiveness. And lead us. Show us how to move on from this day forward 
and holy sexuality, thus bringing glory to you. In Christ's name, amen.